Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Steve Macias and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Welcome to this edition of the Out of the Question podcast. question that's been given is this. Should Christians argue over the celebration of Christmas? So, Father Steve, I know you have Christmas services at your church and at the school. Is this something to divide over? Some people celebrate Christmas and others don't. Well, I think inside that question is a reality that Christians have divided over this. Uh, Some people might not be aware that there were those who we consider inside uh, Reformed Christendom who believed that Christmas was not something that Christians should celebrate. Largely now that that's kind of been uh, forgotten and most people celebrate Christmas in some way, whether it's the materialistic Santa Claus or the actual celebrating of a Holy Communion service on Christmas. I don't think it's something that Christians should divide over because just as St. Paul says, you know, some people consider one day holy, some people consider another. Don't divide over these type of things. I think that that's exactly what St. Paul was talking about when he gave his guidelines for how to have good and godly fellowship with each other. Well, I've seen people, I wouldn't say come to blows over it, but I've seen considerations that say whether or not they're going to even entertain the idea of marriage or whether or not they would really have a close friendship with somebody who celebrates Christmas and they'll call it the pagan Christmas tree and and all that sort of stuff. So what's the best way to maneuver through these very definite opinions? Well, I think it's good to recognize where the, the source of these opinions come from. If you look at some of the modern cults that exist today, so you think about Jehovah's Witnesses um, who are anti all holidays, where does that that root come from? Where do they have this such an, why do they have such an apprehension to holidays? And for many of these people, it's because it sounds or feels too much like Roman Catholicism. And so one of the issues that Christendom has today is we define ourselves by what we're not rather than what we are. And so instead of our central identity being Christ and his gospel, we begin creating you know, these categories of division of, well, I'm not Roman Catholic or I'm not Jehovah's Witness or I'm not these other sub-genres of Christian uh, that end up dividing us and creating small divisions in the kingdom of God. So rather than thinking that you know everything about someone because they do or don't celebrate Christmas or they are Presbyterian or they're Anglican or they're evangelical, that really we should be looking at the fruits like Jesus told us to in terms of how we evaluate whether we're looking at a brother or sister in Christ. That's right. And not just the fruits, but the future of whatever that thing is. Uh, There's a popular Christian author that many of our listeners will know uh, named Gary DeMar. And when he's talking about uh, ideas and the consequences of ideas, he always brings up something that I think should stand in the mind of, of Christians as they talk about culture and celebrations. He says that the Muslims, you know, the followers of Muhammad had no problem putting up their most holy site over a Christian church, right? The, the Hagia Sophia today 
stands for the Muslims as a testament of their great power and strength. They're able to cap over a Christian church with their Muslim mosque. And they see that not as a symbol of a, a foundation that's broken, but as their great conquering. And so a lot of our divisions and questions come from this idea that we have to have this perfect and pure foundation. And the only way to get there is by removing every little piece that we might not agree with and going down to this really core idea. But that's not really how the kingdom of God works. The kingdom of God comes and it takes existing people and it transforms them into redeemed believers. It doesn't do it overnight. It doesn't start with babies and then make them into mature adults. It doesn't do that with institutions either. It requires this type of capstone over the existing structure and then it develops from there. And so Christmas or divisions or denominations, all of these fall into these same type of ideas. We make perfect the enemy of good. So rather than get uptight about people aren't doing things the way you do, it sounds like it's a good protocol to say, why do I do what I do? Why do I put up a Christmas tree? Or why don't I put up a Christmas tree? Why is the whole idea of wrapping gifts and giving gifts important to me? And to isolate out what are nice traditions from what are biblical commands or things the Bible forbids. Right. And this is where some people think that they're have a lot of veracity or a lot of strength in their opinions. Uh, there was a group of Presbyterians or people of the Church of Scotland, uh, often called the Covenanters, who believed that there was a principle that should guide all of our worship. And sometimes this is called the regulative principle. And the idea there, which is very similar to one of the founding principles of this nation, that if it's not enumerated in the Bible, meaning if it's not declared that you should do this, um, then you have no authority to declare it. So, for example, uh, the Lord says that we should honor the Sabbath day. Therefore, you have a responsibility to honor the Sabbath day. He doesn't say that you have to worship on Tuesdays, for example. So if your pastor came up to the pulpit and said, from now on, we're going to worship Sunday and Tuesday, well, the Christian could then appeal to the regulative principle and say, actually, the Bible doesn't say anything about worshiping on Tuesdays, so you can't make this law over our conscience. And that kind of principle is then generally, generally applied to all of what they viewed as superstitious Roman Catholic holidays. So Christmas, Easter, Saints' Days, things like that, which were then, since they're not explicitly proclaimed to be observed in the scripture, then they were thrown out completely and say, there's no merit to do this. And in fact, those of you who are celebrating Christmas or Easter or these other holidays are actually working contrary uh, to God's kingdom or to God's law against God's word. These are encroachments or abridging the, the law of God. Now, what I think is sort of ironic in all that is that people celebrate birthdays and the Bible doesn't say you should celebrate birthdays. So if we're not going to celebrate Jesus's so-called birthday on December 25th, which may or may not have been his actual birth date, people have no issue celebrating birthdays, anniversaries, things like that. So when people are eager to honor presidents, former presidents, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, take your pick of who you want to honor, how come they don't see that as contrary to what they should be doing if they're going to say we can't honor St. Paul or we can't honor Christians who came before us and remember John Calvin or remember John Knox, things like that. 
Right. And I think a lot of it has to do with the theology behind. So the, the Covenanters, also popular with their theology in Geneva, right? So the Strasbourg reformer, Martin Bootser, celebrated Christmas. He, he helped put Christmas into the Book of Common Prayer, continue that tradition in the Church of England. And so there's a diversity or a divergence of opinions here. But one of the, the things you can really clearly see about uh, the Covenanter's opinion is that it was reactionary. Uh, their justification for taking out Christmas is because it was a day of lavish giving, of overindulgence. Um, it was a day that was celebrated more than a Sunday and that we had devolved into a, a Christian people that celebrated only on Christmas and Easter or only received communion on Christmas and Easter. And that somehow that minimized the idea of the Sunday being the Lord's holy day. So there's a noble aspect to it that it's striving for a pure and simple faith. But I think it goes stretches too far because what's special about Christmas is that it is a celebration of the Lord's birth and that you can trace it back to the earliest days of the church. Third century, you have people celebrating not just at the church of the nativity, but you also have the widespread observance of Christmas as a feast day. In fact, uh, the octave of Christmas, which today is now tamed into 12 days or sometimes in other churches, it's 10 days. But this idea of Christmas and its fasting or feast days afterwards, which gets us to Epiphany and all these things, are even older than Christmas. The idea of annual observances of Christ's life and death as being the rhythm of the church year go back to the first and second century. Our earliest Christian writers celebrated and commemorated these days. And so we really have to throw away thousands of years of Christian history if we want to say Christians are not to celebrate Christmas. So it seems like there's a factor of liberty here. I've always looked at God's commandments, for example, to say, if God doesn't prohibit something, then it's allowable. And one must look and not just cherry pick what you want in scripture, but discern whether or not I've got the ability under God as a faithful believer to say, I, I would like to do it this way. So the celebration, for example, of a baptism. I love celebrating baptisms. The Bible doesn't say throw a party if you have a baptism, but it wouldn't prohibit it. It doesn't say thou shalt not. So I think a lot of it has to do with repairing back to what does the word of God say and then realize that not everybody is going to have the same preferences you have. Right. And even more than that, I think that a lot of it has to do with the idea of, of maybe this day is evil or wrong. And so this time of year, if you get on social media, you'll see articles written about the pagan origins of Christmas or the pagan origins of the Christmas tree or the pagan origins of December 25th. And what's interesting is these narratives also come from you know atheists or secularists who want to use the comparative similarities of Christmas celebrations and pagan celebrations to kind of discredit the originality or the, the, the truthfulness of Christian faith. And so in one sense, those who hold to the Bible as their standard are also siding with those who attack the Bible, maybe unknowingly. But there's a, a little bit here that makes it difficult for people who don't like Christmas to swallow it, right? So you mentioned one, was Christ really born on December 25th? 
surprisingly, there are a great number of scholars who think so. They think that the early church uh, fathers knew how to do math. They understood that nine months gestation for a child, they understood and they kept track and they knew when Jesus was born, how old he was when he died. And so there is some evidence to suggest that, yes, he was born on December 25th. But there's also these ideas that people don't like. The idea that December 25th coincides with like a winter equinox, right? The idea of in the pagan world, this would be the time when they would celebrate their darkness festivals or celebrate their festivals of the God. And that Rome may have even had celebrations on December 25th at the same time. And that Christians had adopted or carried on pagan traditions and just baptized them as Christian. And that's another objection people have to Christmas. But it's very easy to see that many of our Christian traditions, including vestments or how we pray, the way we stand, a lot of different things come from a common narrative because God's people were here first. Uh, so the idea of seasons, winter, darkness, uh, happening on December 25th was planned and ordained by God and fits very nicely with the idea of Christ's nativity. The scripture says that Christ came in the fullness of time. It wasn't a coincidence that he was born whenever he was born. And so the fact that pagans had erected holidays that shared common identities with Christ's nativity points again to the truth of Christ's nativity. Christ isn't the Johnny come lately that we've now tacked all these pagan stories onto. All of the pagan stories find their true origins in the foreshadowing of the Jewish people in the very beginning. This collective human identity that's archetypally shown through pagan communities, it's not a surprise that when Christ finally comes and is born, that there's cults around the world that were anticipating something similar. Kind of reminds me of when uh, the explorers landed in Mexico. How did such few men be able to conquer Montezuma's whole empire? And yet they were expecting somebody in terms of their prophecy to bring good news. And so John Eidsmo writes about this extensively in his writings. So you get to see how, just like you said, God ordained all things. The fact that things look coincidental to us are by no means coincidental. Right. And as another part of who is in control of history. So when we remove Christian markers of history, because the Covenanters used a 12-month calendar, right? So they, they were in Scotland and they had months named January, February, March, right? They didn't go about changing those markers. And so they still celebrated Sundays, which was not a, a native Gaelic term or something like that. They had all of these artificial or even pagan origin titles for their names, months, weeks, seasons, right? So uh, there's no real way to purge and start over. And, and somehow the Reformation was going to bring us a whole new culture. The Reformation was all about going through the accretions of the Roman Catholic Church and removing those things that were repugnant to the Word of God, not removing those things that were not explicitly in it. And so ideas like Christmas allow us to say that Christ is Lord over history, not just Lord over history in the future, but every year we're going to remember and bookmark history with his birth and his life, and his resurrection, <laughs> because Christ is truly the Lord over history. Now, when we fail to do that, when we start removing Christian holidays, as you pointed out just a few minutes ago, it's not as though a vacuum's there and nothing fills it in. Humans by nature will fill it in with celebrations of themselves, their national identity, their ethnicity, their own achievements. 
And so by having history in our years, having our calendar bookmarked by Christmas and Easter, it allows us to say, no matter what year it is, this is still the year of our Lord. Exactly. One of the things that I think is really kind of interesting when you talk about the nativity of Jesus, there are a lot of so-called acceptable Christian traditions that really don't even have their basis in Scripture in terms of the narrative. So we have three kings. Well, Scripture accounts don't say there were three kings. It indicates <laughs> there was more than one, but it doesn't say there were three. There could have been ten, but because gold, frankincense, and myrrh, well, that just means one king should have brought one gift, or the whole idea of the conversation of the innkeeper telling Joseph there's no room in the inn. Well, the Bible never has the innkeeper say anything. And then there's a real question of the fact as to whether or not it was a barn in the way we would call a barn or whether or not people brought them into a house, but people would bring their animals into their homes as well. So we have all these things around it and children's Christmas plays and everything else, but they really are extra biblical because we don't have an innkeeper who said something and we don't have three kings showing up at the same time with the shepherds. But the nativity scenes that Christians sometimes will fight over. So this locality or this municipality has said, we can't have this nativity scene. The nativity scene isn't even particularly accurate. That's right. Well, and it's not particularly historical either. <laughs> the origin of the nativity scene is actually remarkably interesting because it was invented by St. Francis of Assisi. And so St. Francis of Assisi is usually known as this guy who you know, has this mystical power of talking to animals, founder of the Franciscan order, which their current descendant is Pope Francis, uh, the current uh, Pope of Rome. But years ago, Francis of Assisi was attempting to reform the church. He was trying to show that there was more to the Bible than, than was currently believed in the church and trying to reform back to a simpler, more austere time in the church. And one of the ways he did that is he got permission from the local abbot to gather up barn animals and find a local child. And they held a real life nativity outside of the church. This is like this primordial nativity of St. Francis. And he creates the story of how it all comes together. And he has the wise men or the Kings come and he tells the story uh, to the people. And that becomes this origin of, of nativity scenes out in front of churches. Now today, especially here in our area, I live between San Francisco and San Jose. There are evangelical churches that have, mega manger scenes where they have whole live casts and sheeps, oxen, donkeys, all the whole nine yards. And they have no idea that they're continuing this kind of Roman Catholic origin celebration. They think it's the most beautiful thing. But all the little pieces that you've said that have become part of this common narrative are from this Catholic saint who wanted to teach Christmas in a more lively way. But it's also an interesting thing because this is really the only time of the year when manger scenes or, or Christmas scenes allow the depiction of the, of the Christ child, which is another uh, interesting thing that we have to kind of reconcile that here it is this time of year, we allow pictures of Jesus in the manger. We allow statues of baby Jesus or real live representations through infant children put inside little beds. Uh, but other times uh, these same churches would be aghast to see a crucifix or or a picture of the risen Christ, or any type of what they would call second commandment violations. But you can see that the culture of 
of Christmas uh, is become more powerful than the word of God in many of these presentations. So much that I just recently went with my family to one of our region's like big Christmas event. It's a Christmas celebration in a park where you take your car and you drive through a festival of lights and they have decorations alongside the road in the state park. And it has maybe about a half a mile of Christmas lights, tunnels and displays and music and all that fun stuff. There's even like light up dinosaurs. But even though you're there and going through this Christmas thing for 45 minutes, hearing Christmas or quote unquote Christmas music, never once do you hear a mention of Jesus or of Christ. And I think the same thing can happen in churches. We get so focused on the nativity scene, we forget what all of those little pieces stood for. We, we get caught up into the plot of a baby was born and people came and brought him gifts and therefore have a Merry Christmas that we forget what the purpose was for that baby even coming. But here's the thing that I think is interesting. Instead of the people of God copying the world, the people of the world try to copy and, and steal from the people of God. Jesus is the light of the world. He came at a time during the Feast of Hanukkah, the Feast of Lights. And you can go at least across where I am and see tons of Christmas lights everywhere. So, you know, And then you can hear Christmas music. Yeah, they'll have Rudolph and they'll have Frosty the Snowman. But you'll, you could be going through a department store and hear he rules the world with peace and grace and makes the nations, you know, you, you hear that. So somehow or other, they can't get rid of him. They may try, but they can't. And some of the most beautiful stanzas of our traditional Christmas carols or Christmas hymns, by the time you get to the fifth, sixth, seventh verse, it's proclaiming the victory of Christ in time and eternity, and how sad that most people only know that first verse. That's right. And there's, there's a lot to the Christmas story that's vilified, but it's actually testimony to the Christian victory. You know, you, you mentioned at the very beginning, people saying the Christmas tree might be pagan. Well, that's just because we're not informed of what the Christmas tree is. And so we read a Jack Trick track and we saw that maybe there was ancient people who worshiped trees. And so since we have trees in our household, we're worshiping trees by putting lights on them, forgetting that there was a whole history behind the Christmas tree. And that is that St. Boniface, who was an English priest who went into the Germanic lands, which were at that time pagan, and they were people in the forest worshiping trees, thinking that these were Thor's trees or the gods' trees, that these trees would bless them or give them fertility. Uh, St. Boniface came into this area, and he chopped down their trees, right, against their wishes, and under the threat of death, he chopped down their trees, and the actual origin of chopping down a Christmas tree and bringing it into your house is a testimony of that reminder of how Christ and the Christian church has gone into the wilderness. People forget that the word pagan is just a Latin phrase that means people who live outside the city. So when Christians were engaging the pagans, it was the people who were uncivilized, the people who hadn't heard yet the gospel. So Boniface goes out into the wilderness, confronts the pagans, chops down their tree, takes their tree, brings it back into the city, and boom. Now you have a Christmas tree. <laughs> Yet, if I were to tell a, a pagan 1,500 years ago, I'm going to chop down your tree, and then this is going to be a symbol that every household million times over is going to put in their household, they wouldn't believe it. But this is a testimony of Christian victory, that we've gone through the lands, 
we've chopped down their false gods and we make a mockery of their false gods by covering them with tinsel, putting our gifts underneath and then throwing it away a couple weeks later. Our God has come, he's destroyed and now he conquers and lives again. Not to mention the fact that a lot of the earlier ornaments that were put on trees oftentimes had the symbolism of the tree of life, the tree of life which Adam and Eve lost access to, and our redemption in Christ gives us access to once again. That's right. Well, and these are things that have kind of cultural identities. Uh, Christendom didn't always have Christmas trees, especially in uh, the West. They were a dramatic tradition because it came from this legend of St. Boniface. And in fact, England didn't have Christmas trees until Queen Victoria. Uh, Queen Victoria was married to Albert, who was of German ancestry, and he really wanted to have a Christmas tree in Buckingham Palace. And so they had one put up and they decorated it. And there's a famous portrait painted of Victoria and Albert that gets published in newspapers around the world. And suddenly in England and the United States, this foreign tradition now becomes the standard for Christians. That this once local German tradition of the Christmas tree becomes the standard for all of Christendom. That's like the emergence of Santa Claus from the historical account of St. Nicholas. That's right. And Santa Claus comes from that, that same idea. Nicholas, Nicholas, no, Santa Claus, St. Nicholas. Santa Claus. There's this really close etymology, and whether you're looking at the Germans or the Dutch, they have this commemoration of, of St. Nicholas who rescues women who were about to be sold into uh, slavery, probably prostitution, by the giving of gifts. Um, yet Bishop Nicholas, who was one of the staunch defenders of Athanasius at the Council of Nicaea, is now maligned by evangelical Christians as a symbol of paganism. How how sad that we've allowed American commercialism to take one of our greatest saints who defended the orthodoxy of the Trinity and the Incarnation to put him in a, a Santa hat, to take away his mitre, to take away his staff, give him a ho-ho-ho in elves, and really take away the significance of what Santa Claus really was, of a Arius-punching, <laughs> theology-teaching, uh, heresy-disputing, great Christian saint who was known for his charity and giving. So we hear a lot today about cultural appropriation. Well, when you think about it, the whole aspect and mission of Christian reconstruction is to take every area of life and thought and make it captive to the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. So whether or not something had its origins in Christendom and then has been commercialized or appropriated by someone else, we should really move forward with the idea that every place our feet trod, we claim in the name of Jesus Christ. So office parties, celebrations, whatever it is, yes, in many cases they can be very decadent and they can be full of things that we don't want to be part of, but that doesn't mean that we can't create our own celebrations and be enthralled at the fact that Jesus Christ God came to earth, took on human flesh to redeem us. So the message of Christmas isn't about the baby only. It's sort of like the retrospective that says, let me tell you the story about Jesus, but if we don't get to the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, and the session in heaven, then we've missed the reason to be happy. That's right. And symbols always work this way. Consider today one of the, the greatest issues facing the Christian church 
is the the onslaught of acceptance from same-sex marriage advocates. And they've adopted a Christian symbol, uh, the rainbow, to be their symbol. They understood that if you take a symbol and you claim it, you can have a lot of power wielding this symbol. But the rainbow was a gift from God as a symbol of his grace against the judgment. So now are Christians supposed to abdicate the rainbow because one group has chosen to use it? By no means. What's really interesting about holy days and, and days of the week is if anybody has read uh, St. Augustine's book, The City of God, he, he goes through all of the seasons, all of the animals, all of the parts of the world, and he could tell you that the Romans had a God for every idea, for every day, and for every season. So there's not anything in this world that the Roman gods didn't claim for themselves. And so no matter what it is, whether it's Sunday worship or uh, it's going to be your child's birthday, the Romans did it too. They worshipped it. And so if you're going to set your standard to be, well, if a pagan did it, I can't do it, then you're not going to be able to do anything. You're not going to be able to name your own children because the pagans did that too. But the opposite of that is exactly what Andrea is saying. It's if it all is Jesus Christ, let's take it and let's put it under his banner. Let's renew it. Let's Christianize it. Let's truly not just baptize it, but disciple it. So there's an identification here that I think it would bear all of us well to consider. If we're describing ourselves, how would you describe yourself? Well, you go up to most people, the person might say, I'm a doctor, I'm a nurse, I'm a housewife, I'm a teacher. But our first and primary designation should be, I am a Christian, I am a child of God. And our identification starts there as whatever we do in life, we bring that to it. And so things can be redeemed and things can be taken and say, okay, we're now going to make it this, even though maybe in our past we did it some other way. But this goes back to the idea that we shouldn't judge unrighteous judgments. So if one family loves putting up a Christmas tree and loves celebrating with all the wreaths and the holly and everything else. Praise God that they are celebrating the incarnation. If others feel that's not the way they want to do it, either because ideologically that doesn't tell them that, okay, this is what brings us closer to God. Or quite frankly, they don't just want to bother with the, all the decorations, taking them up and taking it down. This is, shouldn't be the thing that divides us. We should agree on praise God for the incarnation and praise God for our redemption. That's certainly right. And I mean, you mentioned a, a holiday that Jesus celebrated that wasn't commanded by the scripture. That's the Festival of Lights or Hanukkah. Uh, there's also Purim. There are, are a number of holidays that the people of God have celebrated uh, that were not explicitly called for by uh, the Bible. So there are biblical grounds to follow the example of Jesus and observe these holidays and have our conscience safe from those who would judge us for celebrating them. But again, it's the, it's the bigger question of what is the purpose of what we're doing? And there's another pernicious element to the anti-Christmas crowd, and that is they confuse the materialism or the commercialism of Christmas with greed. And the Christian has to realize and take a step back and say, just as you pointed out with the department store, the Christian life is one of joy, of plenty. It is not, as Puritans are often maligned, one of austerity. Everyone who describes the American Puritans tries to paint them as like joyless, sexless, they never have fun type of people. 
But the Reformation was marked by people who feasted regularly. And Christmas is another example for us to extend the great good news that Christ truly has come and is transforming this world. There's a joy to the world that has to be accompanied by a material manifestation. You're giving not just joy from your heart, but your hands, your, your voice, your celebrations, your decorating. What does joy look like when it's applied to the other parts of your body? And if you were to look at your wife or your, your children and just how you celebrate them, why would our Lord deserve anything less? So I encourage everybody to recognize that even though we can get lost in the commercialism of Christmas, that these are just reminders that Christ has given us the greater gift. He has given us the greater blessings. And here in the year 2019, when so many refuse to identify as under Christ's care, refuse to come under his church, or yet going around sharing with their brothers and sisters the good news uh, that Christ was born. How strange of a world do we live in? Right. So be happy and be willing to enjoy the fact that this time of year, people actually think they should be kinder to other people. And so long as we don't get lost in not letting our own light shine, whether you say Merry Christmas, I like to say Blessed Christmas because I'm not sure exactly I know what anybody else means by being merry these days. But in other words, make that identification that you're really offering to them some of your joy. And it's a joy that this is the time of year that I think people should capitalize on. Yes, that's right. And uh, the proper Anglican way to say it is Happy Christmas. That's what the English say. Happy Christmas. Happy Christmas it is. All right. Well, Happy Christmas to you and Happy Christmas to our listeners. This will probably be the last one we do for 2019. We look forward to joining you again, listening with us in 2020. And we thank those who have been in touch with us, thanking us for our conversations that we share with you. And as always, if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a question that we will tackle, please contact us through our email, outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.